You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Wednesday, June 24th, 2020, just after market close in London. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington from New York, joined shortly by Roger Hurst from the UK. But first, Nick Correa with today's stories. Thanks, Ash. Today, the International Monetary Fund had downgraded its global GDP projections for this year, as well as its growth rate projections for the next year. In April, the IMF projected a 3% contraction in the global economy for 2020, but now they've updated it to a 4.9 contraction. This indicates that they're expecting an even deeper recession than they had originally predicted. Also in April, the IMF projected that the global growth would be 5.8%. Now it's only 5.4%, as they anticipate the economic slump becoming greater. Even with these updated estimates, the road to recovery and the obstacles we will face is still murky. Supply chains globally have been highly disrupted. Demand may continue to lag and even dip going forward, and businesses are still packing on debt to weather the rough months ahead. Looking at credit default swaps, or CDS markets, can help us get a pulse on the health of corporate bonds from another angle. The two main CDS indices in the U.S. experienced major volatility in late March, when the investment grade index spiked to just under 150 bips. It now hovers around 75 bips, implying an expected default rate of 0.75%. The high yield index spiked to 880 bips, and it now stands at just under 500 bips, implying an expected aggregate default rate of 5%. Holders of CDS will get a payout on their swaps when there is a credit event, which means a company fails to make a payment on their debt. So far this year, nine credit events have happened when only four happened last year and three the year prior. These credit events included Neiman Marcus and Hertz. So as the risk of insolvency grows in the light of current circumstances with Corona, the more likely these credit events will happen. As companies become more and more indebted to finance their operations, this also increases their risk. It's not just junk rated that would be poised for credit events. Wirecard less than a week ago was judged to be investment grade. We know that the world is moving swiftly to reopen in order to minimize the impact on the economy. Staying open for business when the virus started spreading earlier this year wasn't cheap. Now, even more businesses who are aiming to reopen or are currently reopening are finding that the cost is burning a hole in their pockets. For example, Walmart has spent around $900 million by April 30th for COVID-related expenses, which include PPE, expanded sick leave, and bonuses for their employees. Target said they expect to spend more than $1 billion on worker-related expenses for wages, paid leave, and PPE this year. T-Mobile also spent $117 million on COVID-related expenses. Kroger's co-CFO Gary Millerchip had said, quote, We do expect some COVID-related costs to continue beyond the first quarter as we continue to invest in associate and customer safety, as well as support heightened digital demand, end quote. Kroger has spent $830 million in the quarter, which ended May 23rd, on increased pay, enhanced benefits, PPE, as well as COVID-19 testing to associates based on symptoms and medical needs. And of course, big retailers and corporations won't be the only ones trying to pay for the costs of keeping their workers safe and their environment safe for customers. 
For cash-strapped businesses hanging on by a thread, it's no surprise that many businesses are found to be in violation of the safety guidelines put out by local governments. It's not only the increased movement of people that is encouraging the spread of the virus, it is the massive cost that inhibits businesses from keeping a clean and safe environment. And now I'll send it over to Ash and Roger. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back, Roger. Welcome, Ash. How's it going? It's going well. You know, Roger, I always look forward to these conversations, but especially this week. We're doing something a little bit different, a little bit more thematic this time around. I know you've been doing a lot of thinking about the nature of bubbles, about the framework, about the history, uh, and about just the general context in which they arise. And you bring 30 years of watching markets to this. I'm very curious, what are you thinking about right now? Well, it's really, I, I did a piece for Refinitiv on the our YouTube platform that went out um, this morning, last night. But it's really picking up on something that I did on January the 22nd of this year when I did a piece called When's a Bubble, Not a Bubble? And my point then, and I was kind of thinking, God, that was probably the worst piece of timing ever um, to say it's not a bubble when it collapses 35% uh, less than a month later or just about a month later. But my point then, and actually you know, my closing remark was that um, a bubble, you know, what you need to see in a bubble is something where you have an exit of a mass exit of kind of euphoria of mass populace leaving an equity market. And when it goes down, it stays down. You have extended losses. And quite clearly, what we've seen now is, is that the you know, Nasdaq's gone back to an all-time high and the S&P's rebounded 80%. So that that to me is is kind of telling us that, that that was not a bubble because there was no, it was a despised rally. There was it was a dispassionate rally driven by buybacks primarily, 401k pension flows, and then the shadow banking system leveraging the Fed flow, the Fed funds, the repo funds that have been in coming into the market basically since September of, of 2019. And then what I was sort of trying to say, and here I'm not trying to say that this is a market high, a market low, anything like that. But what I am saying is that now with the influx of retail, even if the retail is only on the margin, the individual investor, we are now getting the basis for bubble type scenarios to create or to actually kind of inform the market, which is we've got a market back to the highs. It's got a, a higher valuation, not as extreme as 2000 at the, um, at the headline level, but still getting back to those sorts of levels. But now we've got... Um, the emotion in the market, which we never had before. So unlike my, um, January, February, when I, I was saying this is not a bubble, today this has the makings of a bubble. But the thing about bubbles, this is why I'm not putting any numbers on it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before, is we could have a recession in the S&P at 4,000, who knows? You know, people thought Bitcoin was a bubble at 2,000, it went to 20,000. Nearly everybody thought that the NASDAQ was not a bubble in mid-1999 and it carried on for a long time. But all bubbles are manias of emotion, not just valuation. And we didn't have a mania of emotion at the all-time highs earlier this year. We don't have a mania yet, but we're getting, we've got the, the one of the ingredients that was missing is now coming into this market. You, you know, Roger, that's one of the things that I really like about your analytic approach, about the way you think about research and the way that you think about markets. You don't just draw a conclusion. You bring us along with you on your thought process about how you reach that conclusion. And we get to leverage your decades of experience watching these markets. I guess my first question would be, you know, at the simplest level, Roger, 
What are those key classical ingredients that you think of, you know, across across decades or hundreds of years, across different asset classes, across different geographies? What are the key ingredients that actually create a bubble? Well, they're normally something which starts off with fundamentals that are, are relatively sensible or a thesis that is re relatively sensible. I mean, even the tulip bubble thesis was probably re relatively sensible in its first uh, first iteration. Um, and then what you normally need is some form of credit that drives um, the bubble into the sort of second phase. And you can find you know, a lot of research which talks about the various phases, which drives prices higher. Normally, you get a disconnect on valuation, which people would argue we got in equities. But the key thing is that you have to have that emotional driver. And you can look at this, you know, the dot-com we talked about. China was another perfect example in 2015. If you look at the SH comp, it went straight up and straight back down again in sort of 14, 15, 16. And the other element to this, and, you know, it's very hard to guess you know, what part of the bubble we're in, where, whether we're in one or not, but how far we've gone. It's almost impossible to call the top. And most people will only say, you know, a bubble once you've seen it deflate. But as I say, a bubble goes down and stays down. We saw that NASDAQ 15 years before we regained the 2000 highs. The, the um, Japanese market has not regained the 1989 highs. And today, China is still pretty much where it was the year after the bubble burst because the emotional actors have been taken out and they will never return to drive that market higher. So it's all those sorts of things that come together. And as I say, what, what I'm sort of trying to say here is, again, thinking of a framework, not putting numbers on any market in particular, but think of a framework, the one thing that was missing for it to have been a true bubble when we were at those all-time highs and starting to go parabolic on the NASDAQ, on the S&P in January and February, that one thing is now coming back into that market that we've not really seen like this since the dot-com mania of 2000 and, you know, 99 and 2000. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. You know, you, you mentioned the, the credit cycle, um, and I know you've also done a lot of thinking, again, not to, to be anything overly specific or trying to predict precisely where we are at this moment in time. But you've done a lot of thinking about the full, the way that funds flow into equity markets. You've talked about the distinction between mutual fund flows, pension fund flows, uh, and retail investor flows via platforms. Uh, for example, the one that we're talking about so much these days is Robinhood. Can you put a broad framework around the way you think about that? Yes, I think, you know, the I think the key element here is that the market for the last 10 years um, has been driven by flows, not fundamentals, certainly in the last five years. And this is something I was actually writing about back in Deutsche Bank days in 2016, 17, just before I joined Real Vision. And it's something I then wrote about extensively for Think Tank, which was the, the written publication that we used to put out. And I think it was last year where, on some estimates, the total mass, as it were, the total volume of passive funds finally overtook those of active funds. So passive became more dominant than active in terms of absolute um, fund levels. But the flows into passives and the flows driving those passives have been bigger than the actives, or at least there've been positive flows rather than negative flows for actives for quite some time. So the flow of funds in terms of those were being driven by the passive, the algos. The other element to all of this obviously was the share buybacks from the corporates. And if you look, there's a lot of famous charts which basically say that the net buyer of the US market, when you take everything in, on board, was almost entirely the corporates. Um, because what you're actually seeing on the fund flows is whilst the active was going down and the passive was going up, it was a relatively net, uh, a net, they netted off against each other. And now what we're starting to see is one new marginal player which is coming in. You know, what we've seen, you know, when we think about this, the new marginal player is not massive, but they are, uh, what really matters in some ways is how 
how aggressive they are. You know, when there's normally a buyer and a seller for every transaction, it's who's the most aggressive in that. And what we're seeing today is we're seeing a new entrant. You can see it in some of the volumes, whether you look at Hertz, Chesapeake, you can look at Jets, the ETF on, on airlines. No volumes, so to speak, before March, after March, volumes that have gone through the roof from these new entrants. But also what's, what's been playing in this as well is that, uh, and you can see this in the um, um, the SEC filings by Robin Hood, is that of all their flows, you can choose, you should be able to choose where you direct them, but 100% of their um, flows were non-directed. They go to basically the um, shadow banks, which are the high frequency traders. So what are they doing with this flow? Well, they're using that information. The flow comes in. They don't They don't buy it. For, well, they buy it. It's kind of not given away for free. So they're buying the information. So that's probably given a little bit of a supercharge onto these flows as well. But I think the main thing here is that if corporate buybacks have dropped off, 50%, some people think, although the tech guys are still doing quite a lot. If the 401ks at the margin have dropped out, I think the biggest plays that have been coming into the market have been the retail flows to one extent and also the re-leveraging of the shadow banking system fueled by the Fed, who basically backstopped those guys on the 23rd of March when they said, QE infinity, here we come. Yeah, I know another thing that you've been talking about in relation to this market is uh, not just the federal, uh, the Fed expanding the balance sheet, but also what's, I guess, called formally moral suasion. And you talk about it as verbal support for a market, which is another component. Yes, and you can see that because... You know, the Fed has only just started committing to buying in the corporate bond market, but they committed to buy. They said they were going to buy it back in April. So you're know, taking a leaf out of Draghi's book of do whatever it takes. Well, the ECB did almost nothing at the beginning, but the market took the kind of the, the backstop. And, you know, with the Fed, the Fed basically said we will do whatever it takes in the corporate bond market. And the real giveaway here is when you look at shares outstanding, which is a bit like open interest on things like the LQD ETF, which is the investment grade and the HYG. And you can see an enormous explosion of, of shares outstanding pretty much around the time that the Fed came and said, said they'd backstop it. And you know, if you want to be sort of up in arms and angry about it, is that the Fed's going to buy is now going to go in and buy the market after the market has been front run by basically people being quite sensible and thinking we'll buy what the Fed's going to buy. But the Fed is going to buy at prices which are kind of ridiculous in a historical context, and we can see those inflows. So. There is that element that's also been in there, which is, you know, how does QE work? There is a, the sort of the hot potato mechanism of, of pushing funds through into riskier assets. But there's also that expectation that if the Fed backstops it and you've got some dry powder, you'll go into the market. And hedge funds also have relevered because they've joined in the game as well. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't you? Exactly. I mean, it's and that's the thing is that, you know, it's. I think what is fascinating right at the moment is that you can see that there's a lot of old timers, like I'm not quite the old timer, but people sort of, you know, of a certain vintage or older, who as a lot of us are kind of up in arms about what we're seeing. But actually, you know, what we're seeing is perhaps at the wavefront of investment, which is, you know, there is a change in the style. And actually, so far, the retail crowd have done pretty well at buying the dips and taking some profits. And they're not just ch chasing some of these loony ideas like Hertz being bankrupt seeing massive volumes, we are actually seeing retail doing a reasonably reasonably good job. But for you know people of my generation, it's like, God, how can they be beating us? Now, it still feels like this is the beginning of a, a mass influx of emotion. But isn't it sensible to try and make hay whilst the sun shines? And if you're good at it and you can kind of be glued to your screen, and what with the technology on our phones, you know, even the people in my office, the older guys in my office, some of them older than me, are buying Bitcoin and selling Bitcoin on their phones through Revolut and uh, Monzo, so some of these um, some of these banks. So it's much easier today, much simpler, and you're driven by headlines and media much more than you're driven by, driven by the fundamentals. 
because the fundamentals of what the investment banks have or what you have as a retail investor, you've got the information on your phone. So it's a dynamic. How long this lasts, I don't know, but it may be a shift that becomes more permanent than we want to believe, continues to be driven by the flows. But ultimately, the Fed's balance sheet has actually been the key driver over the last three months. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting scenario to see. Uh, and you you make the point that um, that there are people who have been making money in these markets. It, it's you know, it kind of reminds me of the, the Wittgenstein line. The world is all that is the case. It is the thing that you see in front of you and you have to react to the world as it is and not as the world as you wish it would be in some idealized version of capitalism. How do you balance that? How do you square the fact that there have been these profits that many who think about fundamentals find? I don't know if the word is unpalatable, but problematic. It's got to be about the framework. And I know I bang on about this, but if I gave a trade idea, my trade idea would be, uh, historically, my trade ideas were only useful for about 10% of my clients because it depends on you know how old you are, what's therefore what your risk profile is, how much you want to put into the market, what your time horizon is, what's in your portfolio already. But a framework is relative is relevant to everybody, whether you're an investor, a trader, whether you've got lots of capital, small amounts of capital, understand a framework or, or see all the different sides of a framework. So what I look at with all of this is, you know, would I, if, if I took a five or 10 year view, am I comfortable where things are right here, right now? No, I'm not. And I haven't been for a long time. You know, it's to me, this is, there is some absurdities in here. Not uh, one of the small, one of the most key ones being is the Fed can't do this forever, although they do say um, QE infinity. But if you're a trader and if you are able to watch the markets, not necessarily every tick, but be right on your game watching the markets, then there will be money to be made out of these out of trading it. And so there's all these different elements to it. And I think it's it's down to what is your risk limits and what is your tolerance? Because again, I could say to someone, buy the market, and we could have a day like we've got today where we're down 3% as we speak um, on the headline indices. And for some people, that would be through your stops. Whereas other people who might have been trading Bitcoin, and a lot of these younger guys doing it have probably cut their teeth on Bitcoin and have seen much higher volatility than I've ever traded. They're probably going, oh, that's fine. So it's all down to you know, your own preferences, your own risk profile and your own needs and you know how close you are to retirement and stuff like that. So there is something for everybody in every market, but you find that you know, the long-term guys might be getting angry whilst the short-term guys are kind of getting you know, something out of it. Yeah, the best trade idea is have a thesis you understand. Yeah, it's have a thesis, have a framework, and you know, never be rigid on it because the rigidity on a framework is where people become kind of angry with something or they don't want to. They don't want to change when new information comes in, and they're wedded to a basic story. Now, I'm. I'm. I've always said I'm a bit of a plagiarist. I will take anything that comes in, and if something comes in that's more exciting or more relevant than what I already think I know, then I'm happy to change. And so I will talk my way around um, to find what I think is the best solution. Now, I still feel that this is a risky environment, but the influx of the Fed, the influx of the new traders, is continuing the fact that flow is infinitely more important or significantly more important than fundamentals, because no one can say that fundamentals are really driving this unless the new fundamental is simply that the Fed can go on forever. So, you know, you, you temper that and then you work out where you want to be on that sort of matrix. Know yourself and know your enemy and you will not taste defeat in 100 battles. That sounds, that sounds very good to me. <laughs> You know, one of the things that keeps coming up, and um, we talked about this, and I've noticed you've mentioned it a few times, uh, is time horizons. This has been a critical concept that Ed and I have been talking about. When markets get volatile, it's entirely possible uh, that you have uh, you're bullish on a particular asset class or a particular trade in the short term, uh, but you see a secular headwind in the long term. Talk a little bit about that in the context of bubbles, about people who are able to get in and get out when they may see something that may signal risk 
further down the road? Well, I think that's right, is that if you, you know, let's say right now you thought the fundamentals were out of whack, but you take um, you know, what Tony Greer was saying back in, in March, which is you're seeing the flows coming in, you're seeing the Fed commit and putting you know, X trillion into the market. And the big question is simply, you know, on that front, let's say the market takes a wobble, what's to stop the Fed coming in verbally or actually physically with yet more? We don't know. I don't know what is the determination of the Fed and, and the tenacity of the retail. But the point with this is, is that if you've got a long-term horizon, um, and you know, for myself, I'm getting to the point now where I can't risk too much of my capital in the equity market when I think there is still a very good chance of a 50% drawdown sometime in the next five years. Now, that's no use to anybody who's who's kind of looking at these markets. And what if I said, well, actually, maybe the Fed's got our back for 10 years. That's actually a lot of people's full-time horizon for a, a full trade cycle. So you've got to be prepared for that. Now, for me, it's a case of I'm still only 30% in equities. I'm still the propensity to think I'm going to lighten that up rather than add to it. But I might have to change my view. My point is that I don't want to put everything into equities today in the thought that I have in my head that it could be a 50% drawdown sometime soon. And I don't want to say how soon is now, but sometime soon. But if you're a trader, you're kind of going, okay, well, my trading view might be today. It might be the next week, but we still got 35 vol on the VIX, which is telling you you're going to have some nice swings like we had today, like we had two weeks ago, where you could make, you know, what is the return for a pension fund at 7%? Well, you could make 7% in a couple of days with these sorts of levels of volatility. So it's a completely different mindset. And it's kind of each to their own, depending on how much you want to stare at your screens in the market. And these are different views, which are, they can stand together and they aren't necessarily contradictory, but you will see the contradictions and the aggression, particularly on social media at the moment, of these two sides as they kind of go at each other. Yeah, and that's why it's, again, so important to understand the framework. Yeah, framework is everything. Trade ideas, useful if you've got the right position on in the first place or don't have the position on. But framework to me, you've got to have a framework around which you can then work out your risk parameters and limits. Yeah. You know, to talk a little bit more specifically to these markets, I know you've been looking specifically at two main U.S. equity indices, uh, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. What are your thoughts about where we are in both of those indexes now? Well, given that the Nasdaq made the new all-time highs, we've seen this concentration. We've got the five stocks, which are um, a bigger percentage of the market cap than they've ever been. And there's obviously the, the argument, which is a fair argument, that this whole scenario that we've seen has created the concentration, the acceleration into effectively a few stocks. Um, it's, it actually makes, because of that, it actually makes it harder for the Nasdaq to kind of really go to go back down to aggressive lows, unless we get that point where there is capital destruction across the real economy over the next few months, few years. The S&P is a little bit more of a difficult one because it's probably being held up by those same stocks, not to the same level, but it went through all the big resistance levels where I expected it to start running out of steam. 62% retracements, it's now 80%. I think there's still a bit of a gap that it can still fill. So there's those risks out there. But the way I look at it is you've basically got to watch and wait for myself. I've got to make a decision as to whether I think it is the concept of S&P 4000 in a potential economic slowdown or recession, um, or is it that we do run out of steam, it just went a little bit further than we thought. And for me, this whole framework, the way I look at this, this flow rather than fundamental-based framework that we've been in for five years but just went on to steroids recently, is that the higher that these equity markets go, particularly in the US, the worse will be future economic growth. 
It's effectively what we've seen for the last 10 years, but it's gone on steroids because the more capital, the more money that is put into non-productive assets such as equities, which are beyond fundamentals, that's diverting capital from productive causes in the real economy itself. And so the big risk potential is that if people have taken their furlough checks and put it into the, the equity market. Remember, the problem with the equity market is it's always easy to get in. But it's often very, very hard to get out. It's why it's a panic on the way down. It's my God, get me out. On the way up, it's a mania, which has a sort of sensibility of, well, actually, it's sort of could be bad, but it's it's kind of something we can go with. But getting out is always hard and you always get wealth destruction. There's not that many people who get out compared to those who get stuck in. So for me, something I've been talking about on, on the, some of my weekly shows is that the higher that the equity markets go, the more worried I am about the long-term growth because it's showing us that the, the, the capital is being diverted yet again. And so the argument that the velocity of money could be lower in the future increases the higher the equity market goes today during the throes of a recession being driven by flow, basically. You know, it's so interesting. Whenever I ask you about uh, equity index indexes, I can be certain that the words uh, retracement are going to follow in short order, maybe within the first 60 seconds. These, of course, are Fibonacci retracements. Can you talk a little bit about the connection to Fibonacci retracements with bubbles and your thesis about that on the technical side as well as on the psychological side? Well, on on the um, with a bubble, I mean, Fibonacci's are blown out of the water normally because you're making new all-time highs. And actually what most people talk about is a parabolic move. So the Fibonacci retracements were the ones where once you get a bounce in place, and you know we talked about this, and you know people sort of said, "Oh, you didn't call a bounce." It's not—I never called a bottom or anything like that. But it's once there was a bounce in place, these were the levels to look at. We've blown through all of those, including on the Russell, which is the big macro play. So everything has gone way beyond anything that I would have expected. But if we go into bubble territory, we need to see things like what happened in the Nasdaq, which is you go to a new all-time high, and then you start going into this sort of feverish move higher—a mania phase where. We clearly break not just from, we, we break with fundamentals, then we break again with fundamentals. And the Fibonacci's don't really matter. You can still start putting them on there, but I always prefer them as retracement levels. Mm. But for breakout levels, it kind of, yeah, it's that sort of thing. We don't really know. You've got to take a view on have we got overly excitable about the market yet? My feeling is no, we haven't, because there's probably more naysayers than, they are, than there are the excitable players who've come into it. But one thing that I thought was fascinating is that we saw recently that small trader positions, call positions, were 10 to 1 ratio. That beats the previous all-time high of 5 to 1, which was in February. So these guys were playing even before COVID struck. But that February level was already two and a half times higher than the previous 20-year level of all-time highs, including the dot-com bubble. Now, it might be a good thing that these, these guys are looking at optionality, but same time, you know, you can start to see those sorts of things are the emotion that comes in that you need to see if you have a bubble. So can we second guess emotions in a bubble? It's very, very hard. When I say a bubble, people will go, well, we're not the top. It's a bubble potentially in the making because we have the new ingredient that we didn't have before. But where it goes to, <laughs> I have no idea. Right. So what you're saying essentially is once you've had a breakout above a previous top, you don't really do much in the way of looking back from the previous low from a Fibonacci perspective because the predictive power of it is basically driven by emotion at that point and not connected to those levels in a technical range any longer. Yeah, I mean, normally what you'll do is you try and put on something like a, a long-term trend line. You might even put it on a log scale as well because you know even at the beginning of this year, although it looked like we we're going parabolic on a log scale, actually the S&P was doing something relatively normal within the long-term trend. What you want to see is things which are going beyond the norm. So 
you know, big moves in absolute um, index points, which is what we were getting, were actually relatively small and or quite normal in percentage terms. You need those to really start picking up in percentage terms where you can kind of go, God, if it was overvalued last week, this week, because it's gone up another 10%, is ridiculously overvalued. We're not at that stage yet, but those are the sort of things that you need to think about as a potential if we get yet more and more influx of retail and the Fed continues to backstop. Now, right here, right now, the Fed has actually started to reduce its balance sheet expansion. I think we actually had a week where it re reduced its balance sheet as well. And we've seen a 5% move down, now a 3% move down as that balance sheet rolls over. Maybe the thing to do is just watch the balance sheet, but that's a bit of a rear view mirror trade, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, this is so interesting to me because what I hear you saying is different market regime, different toolkit in terms of the philosophy or tools that you apply to analyzing the way markets are moving. Yeah, I mean, I, this, I've had some frameworks where I've thought I've understood it. And I had a framework, you know, you, you can look at, as I say, the stuff that I wrote and presented last six months pre-COVID was all about why I thought the S&P, why markets would actually do okay towards the end of the year, even though the macro looked pretty poor, because of this um, flow-based model driven by the Fed, particularly in the US and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, what, what I think a lot of people, I, when things blew up, I was thinking, can the Fed really do more than the damage that's been done by COVID? And actually, yes, they did more. Um, and But it also, I think, was given that extra impetus on the margin by the influx um, of the retail. So I've got to get my head around that. And I remember it's one of those things that Stan Druckenmiller said on our interview we did a couple of years ago, where it was one of those just throwaway uh, comments, but he just basically said, oh, I put a little bit of money with some of these kind of rules-based funds just to see if I can work out what they're doing and how they're doing it so I can understand that. It's kind of where I feel right now is I don't really understand it. I don't really understand the mentality of, or I don't really understand how they drive the market. So I'm going to watch it. And I'm kind of reading as much as I can and watching as much as I can and seeing if I can glean anything. But it might be that I just go, you know what? It's just the, it's just the Fed's balance sheet. That's the thing that we need to care about. I don't know yet, but just the, the trajectory of the S&P and the trajectory of the balance sheet are still very close at the moment from those lows. You know, th this also is really interesting to me. So my, my question I want to ask is when you don't understand, when you feel that the regime may be shifting, we may be going from a period of one set of drivers to another, what do you do and how do you think about broadly what's happening? So um, firstly, I, I tend to get it very, very wrong. And my experience of that was in 2014-15, um, I was on a narrative at Deutsche Bank, which wasn't actually followed by most of our strategies, which was this is a dollar-based market because the dollar has broken out. So when the ECB and the Bank of Japan went for QE just after the Fed had stopped, every, a lot of people saying that's inflation because they're coming in. I said, no, it's deflationary because the dollar is going to go up because the year on the end will go down. And it was. And then we had a sort of commodity deflationary bust that lasted towards the end of 2015, beginning of 2016. Beginning of 2016, I missed the signs because I was still on my dollar framework. And I kind of ignored the fact that China just stuffed loads of credit into the system. There'd been a, there'd been a Fed relent, which I sort of took, you know, Fed said, we're not going to raise rates as fast as we thought we were, if we're going to do it at all. And then there's this so-called um, G20 Shanghai Accord, but I was now focused on Brexit and then the election of 2016. And I'd missed that the commodity stocks had started to bounce in January of 2016. And it wasn't until well into that year when I was going, oh, God, you know, what really matters here is central bank liquidity. We're back now with a central bank liquidity regime. And it was around about that time when I really started to kind of think, OK, this is all about flows and not fundamentals. 
and I used to, and I read, I read the stuff by John Hussman, and and actually that was really informative because it's a brilliant framework he's got, but it wasn't working. And people say, well, it was wrong. No, it just wasn't working. Why wasn't it working? I think it was because flows had overtaken fundamentals as a key driver. But it probably took me most of 2016 to really work out what this new regime was. And through 2017, I was comfortable. It was corporate buybacks. It was boring. It was safe. But within all of this, you do have these liquidity pockets like we had beginning of 2018, end of 2018, and then beginning of this year. It's the, the big battle for me is I thought that this one, like a lot of us did, would turn into something that you couldn't save with yet more liquidity because we'd be broken. But maybe there just wasn't enough emotion in the market. I should have stuck with my guns from January, but I actually felt that the damage from the economy was worse. So again, you know, my framework there was imbued by my historical sense of fundamentals, despite the fact that I thought I was now driven by flows. Well, flows was more important than fundamentals again. Yeah, markets humble us all and the greatest experts remain students perpetually. It's really the only way to survive. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's always changing. And, you know, it's the markets are very much like you see with sports people who have these amazing runs. You know, there's a few sports people who have nailed it, and there's a few guys in the markets who have nailed it. But most people probably have a period where they kind of understand it, and they move with it, and they get it right. But then, because we've got our biases and we think we're good, we then don't spot the change. And actually, there's very few people who have consistently reinvented themselves in markets and always got it right. There's one or two, but even those will all obviously admit to the, the times when they really struggled. Same with sport. You have the guys who, in, in soccer, they score 20, 25 goals in an English season. Then the next year, they only score between five and 10. I think it's the same thing with markets. You sometimes get into the, the, the groove. And I guess it's, the, it's being able to work out you're wrong quickly enough. And normally, I don't work out I'm wrong quickly enough. The markets told me I was wrong quickly enough this time because of the insane volatility. But that's kind of you know, where, it, where it really comes from. Yeah, that, that's both a humbling and very hopeful and optimistic sentiment. Yeah, I mean, I always think so because, the, you know, what I love about the markets is that there's a, now a new challenge. And the new challenge is, you know, is this the, does this have the makings of a bubble now? Do we have that final ingredient? And can we therefore go higher? Or will the real economy fundamentals reassert themselves, which I think that they will? I'm, st I'm now kind of of the view, I think that, I think we need to go higher yet in the equity market because it's just, as I say, I think that the the negative, there's still more on the negative side. There's more of the sort of the old timers kind of disagreeing with what we're seeing than there are the new guys coming in. But we just got to watch the flows. You watch the technicals. Why did we sell off today? Maybe it's this much vaunted rebalancing of 180 billion that's going to happen towards the end of this month because equities rather than bonds didn't. Who knows? Maybe that started. It feels a little bit early This this you know, at this point. But maybe that's what's going to drive us. But if we know that there's a big rebalancing coming and we see a sell-off over the next few days into the end of the month, we probably know that maybe we want to buy the dip on the other side of that. Again, starting with a trade, and the trade could become an investment. Same with shorts. You hopefully pick a, a point where maybe this is now a good shorting entry point into that rebalancing. And if it then goes beyond there, you can turn it into more than just a trade. But start off with a trading view and then turn it into an investment view. But it's pretty hard when volatility is this high to do anything other than take a trading view. Yeah, all excellent things to look at and excellent things to think about. Uh, Roger, talking of optimism, I understand that you are getting ready in Britain to celebrate your own independence of a sort on July 4th of this year. Is that true? It's, it's a huge It's a huge day in the UK as well, because finally that's the day that pubs and restaurants reopen. And so although you know, I, I don't want to be sort of too blasé about it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically I've booked a lunch 
on the 4th of July. I booked a dinner on the 4th of July in the two um, restaurants here. And there's a pub that I'm probably going to visit in between because they've got a lovely beer garden. So, you know, I'm I'm optimistic that they will hold true to the 4th of July. So I will vicariously be, be celebrating your loss of the great mothership. Excellent. And a happy independence to you too as well, Roger. Absolutely. Thank you very much. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.